Good morning. You know, um, this week I, I got to thinking back as I was preparing for this lesson about those times when we were like in school maybe, or, or maybe you've, you've, you've had this experience where, where you had an activity given to you where you received a series of pictures, right? Like you, you, on the page you got this series of pictures, and, and the, the point was to try to figure out what those different pictures had in common. Right? Maybe they were all like red, or maybe, maybe they, maybe they're all sports related things. But, but you've probably seen these things before, right? Where there's a picture, different pictures within it, and you're trying to figure out what they all have in common. So, so what we're going to do this morning is I'm actually going to make you guys do that. Um, so up on the screen right now is going to come this picture. And what I want you to do is I want you to look at these different items, and I want you to tell me, not, I'm not going to make you tell me, okay. Um, but tell yourself or maybe whisper to your neighbor what you think these things have in common with one another. So we've got a pillar, a clothes hanger, a pile of cash, a person, a cane, and an eye beam. Here's some of you guys talking out there. You know, some ideas, perhaps. Okay, so, so here's the deal. When I look at these different items, and I see these different things, the thing that comes to mind for me is that all of them are specifically designed to support something else. They're all made to support something else. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, I looked up the dictionary definition of the word support this week, and, and there were actually two kind of major definitions for this word support. And the first is to bear the uh, part or all of the weight of something, right? Or to hold something up. In other words, you know, there's some weight that's got to be held up, and this supports it. All right, and, and you look at that picture, all right, there were a bunch of things like an I-beam, right? Like an I-beam is something you use in construction to kind of hold up perhaps a floor of a house. All right, similar with a, with a, a, a pillar, right? It, it holds up maybe an upper floor or perhaps holds up the roof of the house. Think about a clothes hanger, right? It holds up the weight of the particular clothing item so that you can hang it neatly in your closet if you're nothing like me. Right? Right? So it holds, it holds the weight of that thing. A cane, right? Holds up a person who's unsteady when they're walking. It's kind of like a third leg, right? It adds, just adds some stability. But there's a second definition, right? To give assistance to, often financial, to, to enable to function or act, right? Right? So, so when you think about People, people really kind of do both of these things, right? I mean, by, by nature, we have these bodies. We're designed to actually pick things up. We're designed to carry stuff. We're designed to move things around and accomplish things and manipulate things. And we're, we're able to bear the weight of and support things. We're also able to support other people when they're going through stuff, right? Money accomplishes these same things to think about it. Money is just simply a, a system of currency that supports our lives and allows us to purchase the things that we need to do what we need to do. So it's, it's a support. It's really what it is. So all of these things are specifically designed and created to actually support things other than just themselves. We all know that money can be used to support social or political or religious causes. So, so like it enables, enables something to function that we may particularly like. I mean, so, so if you want a church to function well, maybe you give some to make sure that it, it keeps going. If you have a particular political bent, maybe you give some to something or to a candidate or whatever to try to keep things going in the direction you want it to go. We, we know that all of these things have the capacity and the design, really, to support things other than themselves. Now, as you may well have guessed from this introduction, this morning we're stepping into a new four-week series we're calling Supporting My Family. And if you've been around GNG since the beginning of the year, you're probably aware that we're centering all of our teaching around this word family in 2020. And when you think about it, the word family 
much like the word support, right, has a couple different meanings, the word family often has different meanings. In fact, if I were to go to all of you in the room, it would probably become very evident that most of you are involved in up to at least three families. Think about it. I mean, we all have a biological family, right? We all have blood relatives that are, that are close to us, maybe many of them still surviving today. People with whom we are related and interact, we have a biological family, but for many of us, probably not all, but many of us, we're connected to what we call the family of God or the church. We're deeply committed, connected, and involved, in, and, and, and we're followers of Christ and therefore a part of what he calls the church or his family. So already many of us have two for two, but then there's a third family. We're all part of the human family. Every single person on the face of this planet, the Bible tells us, made by God, made in the image of God, made for God, loved and even disciplined by God. And the truth is, the Bible gives us clear direction about how each and every one of us are called to support those different families of which we are a part, often financially. Not just financially, but often financially. We are called to support each of those families, and we're going to explore that over the next few weeks Now, I want to take a moment just up front here today to acknowledge that when the subject of money comes up in church, there's often some visceral, internal reactions that happen for people. Let's be honest, money is awkward to talk about. But here at GNG, we've made made quite a tradition um, of talking about this for about a month, just about every year. And there's a number of reasons for that. Okay? First and foremost, the Bible itself just talks a lot about money. Right? The Bible talks about money a lot because often it's something that, become, that comes between people and God. It's, it's, often, it's often a wedge. The Bible views it often as a wedge that, that's driven between people and God where, where people can tend to choose money over God. And so the Bible talks at length about that in many different places, that the pursuit of money can become a God in and of itself, and we need occasional reminders to keep God first in our life. And the Bible provides that, and so if we're going to teach what the Bible says, we're going to inevitably run up against scriptures that talk about money. Secondly, the Bible talks a lot about how to handle money well. Right? It's, not just, it's not just that it's there, and it's certainly not that money's bad, but the Bible talks about how we handle it right. And so every single one of us can take in and listen to and learn from the wisdom that the Bible has to share with us about our financial situation because it has so much wisdom to share, and every single one of us can get better at how we handle it. And finally, guys, this has become kind of a motto of sorts around here. Every year when we start a financial series, we kind of say the same thing. And that's this. All of us have to realize the church doesn't need my money. I, as a follower of Christ, need to give. It's a very, very important distinction. The church doesn't need my money. I, as a follower of Christ, need to give. Over, over the course of the next four weeks, I just want to say this right up front, and please hear me on this. No one that is going to teach in the next four weeks of this series has a single motive to try to guilt or coerce any one of you in this room into giving anything. Okay? Our purpose, I promise you, is not to make you feel guilty or to unnecessarily pressure you about money and how you're using it or to make you feel bad about what you are or are not giving. Right? Because here's, the, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us very clearly that God is the owner of everything. 
right? Literally the owner and the creator and the provider of everything. So if he wants this church to do something, or if he wants this church to have something, then he can resource it all by himself, (laughs) okay? Right? And so when we say the church doesn't need my money, I as a follower of Christ need to give the reality is you and I may or may not choose to support what God is doing in a church family or in my family or whatever, you know, like those, those kinds of things. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we, we may or may not choose to be obedient to what God says in his word, but the reality is he is able and willing to resource whatever he wants done, and our disobedience doesn't thwart his purposes. Does that make sense? So, so we, however, over the next few weeks, are going to focus in on some of the important passages in Scripture that teach us about how God wants to handle money so that you and I get to make the decision as to whether or not we're going to align ourselves with what it teaches. All right? I promise you, no one who's going to stand here over the next few weeks, is trying to tell you what to do. Our purpose solely is to hand you what the Scripture says and allow you and God to determine what you do in response to it. All right? Which leads us to our focus verse for this series. It's going to come up on our screens. It's Acts 20, verses 34 and 35. The Apostle Paul said this. This is, this is one of the things he said. It was, it, was, <coughs> it was one of the statements he made to a group of people that he loved very dearly. And, and, and I know this is long for a focus verse, so when we recite it, it's okay if you get off track with everybody else a little bit. It's okay. I understand it's long. But the cool thing about this is it sets up very clearly how the rest of this series is going to lay out, and so I just couldn't leave it. All right? This is, this is, the, right, this is the right one for this, this uh this lesson series. So let's recite this together. Here we go. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, what Paul is doing with this statement is he sets up for us the reality that our income, right, what we bring in as a result of our work, is intended to serve within multiple spheres of life. Our income is designed to support multiple spheres of life. Look at what he says. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied what? My own needs. So, so at some level, when you and I work and, and we create income, we are, we are, our purpose with that is to support our own needs. But then he goes on. He says, and the needs of whom? My companions. Who were Paul's companions? They were his brothers that traveled alongside him as he was setting up churches throughout the Mediterranean world. So effectively, this was his church family people that traveled around with him and set up churches. So, so he's saying, at some level, the income that we bring in is designed to support that church family. And then he goes on. He says, in everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must, circle this phrase, help the weak. All right, so there's a third sphere. At some level, our responsibility with our income is to support those who are not able to to support themselves. You see, above all, at the end, and this is, this is really cool, he reminds us of the words of the Lord Jesus, and he says, it's more blessed to give than receive. In other words, when we are givers, we are blessed in a way that is greater than when we simply receive something from somebody. It blesses us in a deeper way, a stronger way, a more powerful way when we give than when we get. And so over the next few weeks, 
we're going to focus in on how the Bible teaches us to use our income to support our family in each of the three spheres that he mentioned. But before we do that, um, um, I just want to take a moment and I want to pray for this lesson and for the series, if you'll join me. Father God, we just come before you today. And Father, we're stepping into what, what, what can often be an awkward subject here in church. Father, many of us have seen situations where, where, where those in leadership and our authority in a church have, have kind of misused some of the things that your word says about money to, to try to grasp it more, to... to to run power plays or pressure or things of that nature. And Father, that is not our desire here. I pray that no one walks out of this room today feeling pressured by me to do anything. And Father, I pray just a prayer of deep gratitude today that, that there are leaders in this church who have made decisions about how we handle money at this church that make it impossible for people like me, like the staff, to even know who gives or how much so that no one in this room today has to feel like I'm preaching at them or so that nobody, myself included, feels like I have to teach this at somebody. Father, I thank you that you've wiped all that pressure and all that coercion aside and that, that this is just us coming to your word, asking you to reveal what you want to say and we want to align ourselves to it. Father, I pray for those that are here for the first time today. It might be awkward to walk in and go, oh my goodness, they're talking about money. It's the first time I'm here and already getting hit up. And Father, I just pray that that they will not sense that today, that that, that, that won't be the, what they walk away with, but that they will rather lean in and give a listen to you about what you want to say, because I believe if we will all do that this morning, how we handle our finances will be better, and as a result, our world and our lives will be better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Um, now, Thessalonica was a city in Greece that Paul had traveled to on his second missionary journey. So if you see this map up here, over on the extreme right-hand side is a, is a big town called Antioch. And it was, it was basically Paul's base of operations for many of his missionary journeys. And so Paul left Antioch, traveled through what is now modern-day Turkey, over to the Aegean Sea, where he received what he believed to be a call from the Holy Spirit to, instead of going north, to actually go east over into Greece. He believed God wanted to share the message of Christ with those in Greece. And so he crossed the Aegean, and he worked his way down to the coast to this this big town. At, at, time, the, at the time, population estimates are, are estimated to be around 200,000 plus. This big town called Thessalonica. And you can read about this exact experience, Paul being in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And once Paul was there, he did what he always did. He had a very definite pattern for his mission work. And so what he would do is he would go into town and he would begin preaching on the weekends at the Jewish synagogues. And he would preach, and he would talk about Jesus, and eventually he would win some people, both Jews and Greeks, to being followers of Christ, and then he would set up a church. But throughout the week, he would work a manual labor job. Right? Ultimately, this church began to grow and flourish under Paul's leadership. But that growing and flourishing came at a cost. They began to experience persecution from the Romans who occupied that city, as well as many of the non-Jesus-believing Jews, right? And they, they ended up experiencing pretty significant persecution that ultimately forced Paul to leave town in fear of his life. So Paul had to leave 
And, they, and his, his own followers, like the, the, the church there, actually ran him out of town and said, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go, because they wanted to protect him. And so they sent him off, but he wrote two letters back to this church in order to kind of encourage them, to provide them with support, to challenge them to live holy lives. And we are going to read from one of those letters today. We're in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And I want us to stop and notice what he has to say. All right, so we're in... 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Here we go. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's starting pretty strong, right? Pulling Jesus into this conversation. He's not just talking for himself. He's saying, all right, fellas, listen up. In the name of Jesus, <laughs> right? Talk about powering up, right? We command you, right? We command you. I'm not suggesting anything here. I'm telling you what to do in the name of Jesus, <laughs> Right? So you can't argue with me, <laughs> right? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away, circle that phrase, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Now, if you're anything like me and you're reading this passage for the first time, you're like, dude, like harsh much? Like, what is going on? Like, this is a hardcore response. And for what, right? Some, you got some kind of lazy guys? Is that really? You're getting this upset about, like, okay, fine, Paul. If they were stealing from the church, yeah, yeah, kick them out, right? Maybe they're sleeping with somebody else's wife, or maybe they're mis- just being a jerk and mistreating people. Yeah, maybe you avoid those kind of, you're just going to avoid people for this? What is going on? Let's take a look at what Paul is saying. His command is to stay away from, i.e. don't associate with people, circle this phrase, who are idle and disruptive. Idle and disruptive. Now this phrase is really important. There were, and, and it was really, there's, there's a couple ways that this can be interpreted, and either way is, is, really, is really fine. Right? <clears throat> These are either people who were just flat lazy. Right? So they, were just, <laughs> they just wouldn't work. They just would not. They just decided, you know what? I ain't doing it. And they just went lazy. That's one option. Another option is that in, 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 Rome, in, in, in Roman culture, which Rome was the dominant, dominant power at the time in this area of the world, there was a system called patronage. And what it basically was is that a person of lesser wealth and status would attach themselves to a person of greater wealth and status, and they just kind of do favors for them, and uh, the, the people that were super wealthy and important would, you know, toss them a little change for doing some odd jobs for them, and that was it. Right? It, was, it was kind of a way of attaching myself to somebody who's wealthy so they'll take care of me. I do them a few favors, and that's it, and that's all, Right? It wasn't regular, daily, consistent work. It wasn't really producing income or, or provision for myself off of my own efforts. It was just kind of sucking off a rich guy. It was kind of a lazy man's way of getting by. It's quite possible that some of the people in the Thessalonian church were actually engaged in this system of patronage, or that there were some people in that Thessalonian church that were just flat lazy and wouldn't work. Right, it's possible that they had people like this in their, in their church. And Paul felt that it was important for people to work and produce something in order to create their own income. So look at verses 7 and 8. He says, this, For you yourselves know that you ought to follow our example. So what Paul is, is saying, the emphatic nature of his, of his response to these people is based on the fact that he believed he had provided an appropriate example for the Thessalonians to follow, and he's perplexed over here because they're not doing it. They're not following his example. And he's upset about it. And he's saying, guys, I showed you. So what was his example? We were not idle when we were with you. Stop there. All right, now we've talked about this in, 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 before, right? Paul's typical pattern, go into a new city, win converts in the synagogue during the weekend, but during the week, he worked a manual labor job. He was a tent maker. He worked in leather, right? So he, he earned a living doing a manual labor job during the week and preached on the weekends during the synagogues and even at evenings and stuff like that. And so his typical process was to work so that he could mission, 
And his, his, his attempt was to earn what he needed, right, by, by working for himself, producing wealth. This is what he'd done when he was in Thessalonica. And here he is saying, when I was there, I gave you an example to follow. Earn what you receive so that you have enough to pay for what you need. Look at what he says. When we, were, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. In other words, when I roll into town and I'm, and I'm doing mission work and I'm working all that kind of stuff, if I'm going to eat it, I'm going to pay for it. What he's basically saying is don't get by on borrowed bread, guys. You hear me? Don't get by on borrowed bread. Pay for what you need. Take care of yourself. Look at what he says. On the contrary, we worked night and day. We were laboring and toiling. Look at those words. I mean, these, the, he, he's like, I'm working hard. I'm taking care of myself. I'm doing what I have to do. If that means staying up and working extra, if that means taking on more, I'm going to do it so that I can further the message of Christ while taking care of my own needs. We were laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Circle that word, burden. Think about that for a second. He's saying, I don't want any of you to not be able to take care of yourselves because you're trying to take after me. I don't want you to have to worry about me. So I'm going to take care of myself so you don't have to do it. And he goes on in verses 9 and 10. Look at this. He says, we did this. We did this. In other words, him and his companions. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. So Paul is saying, like as a spiritual guide, as a teacher of truth, as somebody who's coming to you with the word of God and telling you the truth and teaching you how to live so that you might have a relationship with Christ, I actually have a right for you to support me. I mean, it's right there. Not because we don't have the right. I have the right to ask you to support me for providing you with this service. However, notice what he says, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate, right? in order to show you what a living and breathing example of somebody who takes care of themselves is all about, I rejected the right to receive the support that you otherwise should have given me in favor of working for myself and generating my own wealth for my own needs so that you wouldn't have to do it. Wow. Right? Now, here's the reality, guys. He's saying, I could have asked for that. And it's fascinating. We're going to learn a lot about this next week. In other places, he commands people to support those who are serving them spiritually. So we've got to get a really well-rounded picture of all this. Right? We're not just taking one passage and using it in only one way. The reality is there's other teaching elsewhere where he commands people to take care of those who are spiritually supporting them, and we're going to learn about that next week. But he says, I had the right for you guys to pay me since I was supporting you, but instead I didn't take advantage of that right because I wanted you to see an example of what it meant to take care of yourselves. And this brings us to the first point that we have to understand. Paul is making a clear argument, and that's this, that our financial responsibility, number one, is to support our own needs by our own work so that others don't have to. Right? Right. Our responsibility as people is to support our own needs by our own work, so that other people don't have to do it. Now, I want to make a couple of comments that I think are really important before we go farther. There are a couple of groups, I believe, that Paul is not talking to, and we need to, we need to own that, right? Like, as I already said, um, in other places, and we're going to learn about this next week, Paul references those who are spiritually working on the behalf of others, and, and, I don't, and, and, and he encourages support to be made for those individuals. So I, I don't think he's necessarily talking to those who are, who are working their lives away for the pursuit of the gospel, right? I also don't think he's speaking to those who are physically unable to work, all right? We can exempt them from this from these commands. The reality is there were people in Paul's day in this church 
Part of the reason he's giving the command is that there were people who were unable to work through physical or emotional issues. There were those who were simply not capable of generating their own wealth. And for Paul, the responsibility of the church was to help those people out to take care of those folks. But his argument here is to take care of yourself so that you don't have to be one of the people that's getting taken care of. There are going to be people that need to be taken care of. There are going to be people that need support from their church family, but you don't have to be one of them if you're physically capable, is what he's saying. Third group that I would maybe perhaps exempt from this a little bit, a little bit, is is what we in America call retirees, (laughs) right? All right, the reality is that some of you have worked for a very long time, have produced your own needs, and now you're living at the point of life where you have amassed a certain amount of wealth that will take you a few years, and you're kind of living on that. To that I say, you have planned wisely quite often, and you've done well, and that's great. Perhaps at this point in your life, you don't have to work for your own needs. However, from a scriptural standpoint, the reality is no one gets to retire from the work of God. And so while you may not have to work to support your needs at this point, perhaps there is work for you to do in the kingdom of God. Right? The point here is really simple, guys. If we have the physical and emotional capacity to support ourselves and to create income that will meet our needs, then we should do so so that others don't have to support us. He acknowledges that there will always be situations in the world where, in which others need help, and the church at this time was widely known for taking care of those who could not work for themselves. Right? And we're going to see that in week three of this series, so, so hang on. Right? This is, this, is, this is a little plug for me. Please really try to be here for all four weeks because you're going to get a slice of the pie every week. And if you can't be here one week, at least listen in online or do something because you don't want to miss the teaching you're, or, or you're, going to, you're going to end up with an, a not as well-rounded view of this whole process. Okay? So all four weeks of this, of this series are really important. By providing for ourselves, however, what Paul is saying is that it makes one less person that needs to be provided for, and that's really important. Another thing I want to focus on for just a second is that word there in the middle, support your own needs. Needs. Now, guys, most of us, most of us are kind of middle-class-ish Americans, Okay? Most of us. Not all. I understand that. And most of us in this room, okay, the reality is most of us in this room don't have to worry about our actual needs. Food, clothing, water, shelter. Most of us don't wake up every day wondering if those things are going to be there. Okay, I'm not saying all. I'm saying most. Right? And so the reality that we have to think about is this. Right? Because the Bible is clear that we are first and foremost responsible to work for our own needs, but what is left over once we have covered our own needs is not necessarily immediately our wants. And what we're going to see over the course of this four-week series, and again, I just urge you, there's, there's importance in all four of these weeks, is that there, is, there are three different major spheres of responsibility when it comes to our income, and we start with each of the major spheres, and then if there's anything left over, we can get to what we want. All right? But we start by being responsible in the areas that God has made us responsible, and then we get to what we want. Okay. Needs in these three areas are priorities over our wants. Now, notice how he ends this phrase. He says, for even when we were with you, Even when I was there, when I was teaching you and preaching to you and in your face all the time, when I was there, I gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Okay, Paul. Right? 
He's made it clear that he's told them this in person and he's expecting them to follow through. Those unwilling to work should not receive help. And he's telling the whole church, notice this, he's telling the whole church family, if they won't work, don't help them. Not if they can't work, if they won't work, don't help them. <laughs> Boy, guys, this is, this is hard stuff. But the reality is this is what he's saying. There's no other way to read this verse. As we look to fulfill our biblical responsibilities that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, it's important for us to realize that we also have a biblical command not to help people who will not support themselves. Guys, I know that sounds hard, but I think to understand this, what we actually have to do is we actually have to pause right here in 2 Thessalonians, and we have to, we have to roll the tape backwards a little bit. Because Paul had a worldview about money and self-support and work that was grounded someplace else in Scripture. We actually have to pause here in 2 Thessalonians and roll all the way back to the book of Genesis if we're going to actually get a real clear understanding of why Paul was such a hard guy about this. Okay, because Paul clearly has a very severe willingness to tell people that if they shouldn't work, they shouldn't eat. And he, exp- he understands that and explains that as a result of a mindset that for him began in the book of Genesis. Because as a Jew, Genesis was the beginning, the foundation of his faith. It was, it was the beginning place of his worldview. And to understand it, we have to go back to there. So what I want us to do is I want us to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Notice this. This is Paul's view of work. Start here. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God made people. And notice this. He made them, circle that phrase, in his own image. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So at some level, he made human beings like himself. He had... They have these qualities or these attributes that are similar to God. We are not God, obviously, but he made us in his image with these qualities and attributes. And God said in verse 28, God blessed them, and and he said, be fruitful and increase in number, all right, have babies and fill up the world. Fill up the earth and subdue it. Rule. Circle that word. Rule. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God says, increase and multiply, take over the world, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to rule. Now, if I stopped and asked you all if you felt like a ruler (laughs) in life, do you feel like a ruler? Does anybody feel like a ruler? Probably most of you don't. Most of you wouldn't raise your hand. What is ruling actually? Don't raise your hands here, but how many of you at work have people that are looking up to you from underneath you on the org chart and they're expecting you to make decisions? Don't raise your hand, but how many, how many of you have children that you're parenting? How many of you right now, maybe, maybe based on New Year's resolutions in January, you are actually right now taking active steps on a daily basis to change something about you or change something about your family or change something about the world around you? How many of you are doing that? You see, that's what ruling is. Ruling is work, <laughs> right? To rule something is to work it. So we rule over our family by working them toward the kind of people that we want to be. I I mean, I'm raising my kids right now, and I'm ruling them by telling them no, right? A lot of times, every day, right? That's ruling, right? At work, when we're making decisions and it affects other people, that's ruling. It's it's taking the effort that we produce to, to create something in our world. And God says, rule, work. But notice this, in verse 29, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And and we'll skip the rest because it's all about animals. But here's the reality, all right? God's saying, I will provide what you need to do what I'm asking you to do. 
I'll provide the fuel for the work. I'll give you everything you need. I mean, this is like the perfect setup, right? Notice what he's saying. In essence, God is providing everything Adam and Eve would need to do what he called them to do. They were, they were in Genesis 2.15. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to, circle the phrase, work it. This was their job. And God provided them with everything they needed. So here's the, here's the thing. The first thing that Paul knew about work, the first thing he believed about work, is that work is God's creation. Notice we're in Genesis 1 and 2, so no fall has happened yet. For those of you who know the, the kind of biblical story of creation and then fall, right? The sin of people, the entrance of sin into the world. That hasn't happened yet. And work's already here. Work is a creation of God. It's not something that was accidental or unintended. From the jump of the creation process, God made humans to work. Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he had made. Notice this, and circle this phrase. It was very good. So work is God's creation, and God himself worked in the process of creating and said he made us in his image. And so therefore, not only is work God's creation, work is good. Work is not some evil that's slapped down on us from above to, to make us slave our lives away in abject misery, right? right? There, are other, there are other worldviews and religions that actually believe that. That work is something to get rid of or to escape or to avoid. But the, but the Bible is teaching us very clearly that work is God's creation. Work is good. Talk to somebody who can't work and wishes they could. And you'll realize that there's something fundamental in us about work that is good. Many of us miss it when we can't do it. But there's a third reality that we have to understand, and Paul knew this and believed it. Work was cursed and made harder by the fall. Many of you know the story of Adam and Eve and how the original creation was good and God provided for their needs, but look at what happens in chapter 3. They disobey. They eat from the tree that God says not to. And in Genesis 3, we read this. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Okay, so since you disobeyed me, Notice, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 1, God says, I will provide you everything you need to do what you need to do. Genesis 3, God takes away not the work and not even the provision. He takes away the ease with which it comes. So now we're, we're, we're left to still work. And we're left to still produce and we are still capable of producing for our own benefit. But the reality is it will now come harder. Because sin has entered the world. The ground won't work as well. It won't provide for itself in many ways like it did before. We will, we will work in situations where we're bumping up against people who are evil or do evil things. And so work will make it harder. It will be harder for us. Yeah, we still have to work. And our work will still be productive, but it will just be harder. And Paul knew this. Remember his words. I labored and toiled with you, working night and day to, to provide for my own needs, because he knew. He knew this. Work was good. Work was created by God, but work has been broken. And so now I have to work harder. Now I have to stay up later. Now I have to do more. Now I have to work extra hard. Because the world isn't going to do it for me. Guys, Here's the deal. What Paul believed from Genesis about work is basically summed up in this phrase. Working hard to support my or my family's needs, okay, 
is biblical behavior. Working hard to support my or my family's needs is biblical behavior and is a major part of living out the image of God. Right? Think about this, all right? Let's break this down just a hair. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, working hard to meet our own daily needs is our first financial responsibility. And it's biblical behavior. I think, I think oftentimes many of us will look at it like, oh, wow, you just wrote a giant check to your church. You are so godly. Like, oh my goodness, you saw that poor person on the street and you bought them a meal. Wow, that is so godly. And you know what? The reality is that's true. That's godly behavior. So is paying our bills. It's godly behavior to pay for our stuff. Get this. It's godly behavior to pay off our debt. Think about it. The the, the title of this lesson is Start with Self-Sufficiency. Paul is saying, meet your own needs. What is debt? It's going to somebody else to provide for something we want or need and using their money to purchase it. At its very core, debt is not self-sufficiency. Now, now listen, am I saying that nobody can have debt or that nobody can buy a house or anything? No, of course I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But paying off our debt is exercising self-sufficiency. Dealing with those things that we have taken on from somebody else, that is self-sufficiency. And we've got to understand, this is what we are called to. We live out the image of God in us well when we work in such a way that we are able to produce self-sufficiency. It's something we have to recognize. So with the time I have left, what I want to do is I just want to, I want to deal with a couple of obstacles that I think stand in the way of us being self-sufficient. Paul talks about, so now, so now we're buzzing back out of Genesis and over, over, to, over to 2 Thessalonians 3. So, so Paul, what Paul does with the rest of this passage is he deals with two obstacles that keep us from being self-sufficient. Right? And the first one is this, and, and you kind of had to have known this was coming because of what he's written earlier. Right? Laziness and idleness. Laziness and idleness are, are problems for Paul, and they are the first obstacle. If we have a lazy attitude and we don't want to work to produce for ourselves, the reality is he has got nothing good to say for us. He says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. So Paul is now looking at the church in Thessalonica, and he's saying, I'm hearing, I'm getting reports that some of you are not willing to work to meet your own needs. And he's saying to the people in the church, guys, what I'm hearing is that you're okay with this. You're letting it happen. You might even be continuing to support these people. He says they're not busy. They're busy bodies. They're not actually working. They try to make it look like they might be, but they aren't. They're not producing anything of value. Instead, they're just getting busy being involved in other people's lives. He said, that's a problem. Verse 12, notice this. He says, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there he goes throwing Jesus down again, name dropping, saying, all right, you better listen to me now because I'm talking from Jesus, right? These people, tell them to settle down and earn the food they eat. Get a job, work the job, get paid, eat. simple. Notice the emphasis on Christ in this passage. He says, he says, I urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying, he's saying, all right, listen, Thessalonians, if you, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, and many of these people did, and if you say you actually know Jesus, which these people clearly did, then be responsible for believing and living out the truths that Paul showed them by example and that Jesus or that Genesis taught them about work. He's saying live it out. And he's a bulldog on this point because as a follower of Christ, laziness and idleness have no place. God did not make a world in which it was acceptable for human beings made in his image to not produce. 
It's sinful. And it needs to be seen for what it is. But Paul wraps up this section. This is verse 13. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole section. And I, and I hope, just, you might want to like circle this phrase. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Circle that phrase. Never tire of doing what is good. And I love this phrase because it's, it's a perfect bridge between verse 12 and verse 14. Because it means what is good, right? The good means what's on both sides of it. That's why I say it's a bridge, all right? On the one side, never tire of doing what is good is working hard to generate what I need for myself. That is good, Paul says. That is, or that is, that is what Genesis taught us about work. We are to work to provide for ourselves, right? So he's saying that's good. Never tire of working hard and doing what you need to do because that's good. But... Never tire of doing what's good also connects with the next verse, which takes us to our next obstacle, and that is enabling. Enabling is an obstacle to self-sufficiency. Let's read verse 14, and then we'll see how verse 13 fits into this, right? He says, take special note of anyone. All right, in other words, Paul's saying, guys, I want you to pay attention to anyone in the church. I want you to notice people in the church that are doing this. What is it that they're doing? I want you to take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. So what Paul is saying, you've got to notice this, right? Never tire of doing what is good. Verse 12, what's good? Working for yourself and providing for your own needs. What is good in verse 14? Correcting those who are unwilling to do it. Challenging and holding accountable those who are unwilling to do it. Boy, in other words, he's saying, if you, notice, notice this. He's saying, if you're in the church here in Thessalonica, and you're one of the people who's actively supporting somebody who will not work to, to meet their own needs, Stop it. That's what he's saying. He's saying if, you're, if you got a person on your hands that literally won't support themselves, quit supporting them. And notice he says they need to be made to feel ashamed of that choice. What is good is not allowing people to not take care of their own needs. That's what's good. That's what verse 13 is saying. Never tire of doing what is good. And sometimes the thing that is good in verse 13 is the one thing we don't want to do. And that is say to somebody, no, I'm sorry. If you won't work and you won't put yourself out there to put yourself in a better position, be able to take care of your own needs, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Sometimes that's good, and none of us, trust me, I don't want to do this either. (laughs) Shoot, if I could get away from teaching this, I would prefer it. But it's sitting right there. I can't ignore this, and neither can we. He's saying, don't do it. And yet, look at verse 15. And this this is where it's so awesome, because this is where the grace of God comes in. He says, yet do not regard them as an enemy. In other words, don't reject them and act as if you won't ever talk to them again. Don't treat them poorly. Don't don't mistakenly, in the name of, of correcting behavior, mistreat the person. He's saying, don't cast them out as as you would somebody who just openly rejects Christ. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Warn them as you would a fellow believer. So if there's somebody in their life and this is the way they're living, he's saying, warn them lovingly. Try to encourage them to stop living this way because it doesn't work. Love them enough to tell them the truth. Don't rob them of the blessing and the challenge of providing for themselves, even if that means that we have to have uncomfortable conversations or withdraw support from them. 
over the course of a, of a few years of doing this, you know, I've been, I've been asked by some really well-meaning people, like, okay, how do I know when I've crossed the line into enabling? Right? How do I know when I'm that person that's, that's, now, that's now cramping somebody's ability to be self-sufficient? Right? I, I think this is our answer to that question. Our goal in helping people should always be to move them in the direction of self-sufficiency. Our, when, we, when, we, when we dole out financial support to somebody, when we take care of somebody else, what is it for? It is designed to be moving them in the direction of self-sufficiency. Now, I'm, again, remember who we're not talking to. We're not talking to people who are unable to work. We're not talking to people who are physically incapable or anything of that sort. Remember this, right? But, but when, it, when we're dealing with people who are physically and emotionally capable of going out and getting a job and producing for themselves, then any support we provide them ought to be in the direction of helping them go do that. If it's not, then all we're doing is robbing them of the responsibility to provide for themselves. And if we have any sense that we are stealing from them by giving generously to them the capacity for them to take care of themselves, then we just gotta stop. Guys, the bottom line of this lesson is very simple. Godliness, right, godliness, a desire to serve and to please God leads to a lifestyle of self-sufficiency not other dependency, right? If we are going to live godly lives, then it should lead to people becoming, ourselves included, self-sufficient, not other dependent. Again, and here's the, here's the beauty of it, and this is why we need the other weeks of this series, so please, please don't just stop at this lesson today. Listen to the other three lessons in the series because it's really important. There will be moments in life where all of us, by circumstances beyond our control, will probably end up in a place where we need help, and that's okay. Whether it's a job loss or a health issue, an accident or a death, the reality is that many of us will end up in that kind of situation, and there should be help and support among those who love us. But when our misfortune is the result of our unwillingness to work or our dependency upon others, we should be corrected and challenged to change. Now, <laughs> now, as, as, we, as we get ready to go this morning, guys, um, we've got a couple things that I want to just kind of let you know about by way of, of next steps. Um, some things that you might do as a, as a, as a response to this lesson. Uh, number one, I mean, honestly, uh, and this isn't on the paper there, um, but if, if you've got one of the enabling situations going on in your life, maybe your next step is to figure out how you're going to move that out of your life, okay? Um, maybe if you're in that situation where you're not quite taking the drive and the effort necessary to go out and support yourself, and you can, maybe that's the next step that you need to take care of. Another one is we've got, we've got something here at G&G that we call the, the Freed Up Financial Living class. And this is, a, this is for anyone who just wants to get a better handle on their finances, um, we do classes periodically through the year where, where we offer somebody in a totally confidential, totally private manner to walk through with you some teaching and some instruction and some exercises that will help you make better decisions, plan a budget, deal with debt, other things of that nature. And you can walk through that class. Um, and, and we would encourage you, if you're interested in that, just, just write on your, community, or your Connect card, um, I, I'm interested in the... Uh, freed up financial living class, and we will we will connect with you when there's when there's a, a scheduled class. The other thing is there's something coming up um, on March seventh, on Mar- uh, March eighth, um, which is the last Sunday in this series. We it's a it's a day we call Decision Day, and it's a time where we stop and we think about the series that we've just had, and we and we decide what we're going to do with what we've heard. And there's going to be options for you to think about how you're going to handle your income with relation to each of the three spheres that we talk about over the course of the next week, in the next, the next weeks. 
But on the day before that, prior to decision day as a way of preparing our hearts and minds for it, we're doing something we call the 24-hour prayer and Bible reading. And that's where for 24 hours on Saturday leading up to Sunday morning, we will, we will read the entire New Testament during that 24-hour period. And people will descend upon this building for 24 consecutive hours to pray um, over the ministries and over ourselves and over the church family at large. And so I would encourage you, if you're interested in that, to sign up out in the atrium. There's a table across the atrium on your way out of the building. You can sign up for a slot to read or to pray. We can even make it possible for you to read or pray at home if you can't get here. That's totally acceptable. So if you're interested in that, please sign up for that out in the atrium. Guys, the reality is we are all called, first and foremost, to be people who provide for ourselves so that we can move on to what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks and be a difference maker in the lives of other people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you've taught us. We thank you for the challenge of your word. Father, it is hard to read these verses. It's hard to hear them taught. It's hard to teach them. It's, it's hard to go through the steps that these kind of teachings require. But Father, living out your word is what we're here to do. And so I pray that you will help us do it. Father, this day, walk with us and guide us as we think about how to do what you've asked us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.